0: What a great phrase, hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. That's good. In August of 1945, the United States military dropped atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which resulted in over 200,000 deaths and brought an end to World War II. In the decades following this, a nuclear arms race began, specifically or most intensely between the United States and Russia or the USSR during the Cold War. Uh, Both countries developed and tested more and more devastating bombs and rockets to deliver those bombs. Eventually, world leaders began disarmament talks. You get rid of a bomb, I'll get rid of a bomb, and we'll slowly bring this down. And then treaties were signed, and some of them have been replaced or voided, continuing to work toward these type of things. But the treaties were signed, these talks were given in an attempt to avoid a nuclear holocaust and the mass destruction of life on earth. After all, what could be more catastrophic and deadly to life on earth than warring countries firing nuclear bombs at each other? The answer to that not-rhetorical question, uh, not-hypothetical question, would be another flood of God's judgment. You see, at the flood, God essentially destroyed the earth that He had created in judgment, almost an act of uncreation. Graciously, He spared Noah and his family, saving them from judgment using the ark and he has now brought Noah along with his family into a recreated world. So in terms of Genesis so far, we could say that Noah is like a new Adam in a new world. That's kind of where we find him at the beginning of Genesis chapter 9, which is our text for this morning. And we read of that, this new man, uh, his family in a new recreated earth, Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, First. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. And, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. We see from this passage, the first truth we want to emphasize this morning is that God is gracious in his blessing, right? At the beginning, right? God blessed Noah and his sons. God is gracious in his blessing. Did you notice any similarities between God's words to Noah here and what he said previously to Adam and Eve? Now, it's been a few months since we did that, but it's a familiar passage. Any similarities? Did you notice any differences? Well, Adam and Eve were created as divine image bearers, God's son and daughter, as well as king and queen over creation. You remember when we talked about that? The two aspects of that relationship to God as image bearers and his image, in his likeness, they were a son and daughter. It was a childlike language. And then over creation, there was the royal aspect of it. They were to to serve, to rule God's rule over creation. So divine image bearers, royal sons and daughters. And as royal children, Adam and Eve had responsibility to rule God's world, God's way. Read about that in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So do you hear the restatement of those things in what we just read in chapter 9? Despite human sin and the judgment of the flood brought about because of human sin, humans were still image bearers. And they still are. We still are. Right? That relationship that we're supposed to have with God and then from God to other people still exists. God is still meant to be the Heavenly Father of all of His image-bearing creatures. And we are meant to extend His rule, His rule, not our rule, His rule, over creation, which now, as we saw going back a few sermons, is not our rule and not just his rule vaguely, but Christ's rule specifically when the image came. And now we're, we are physically, right? There's that aspect of we had a relationship with God. Aspects of that relationship were broken, but we still bear his image. Now we are being recreated to bear the image of Christ and to go forth in his kingdom right, to extend his rule. So we see that fulfillment in Christ. But that is still, the relationship with God of image-bearing still exists, even in Genesis 9, even post-flood. What is different, though? Right? Between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, there are some differences. Animals are now said to be fearful of humans in a way that they apparently weren't before the flood. Uh, the eating of animals is now expressly permitted, Although there is some disagreement as to whether this was actually new, were they allowed to do it, did they do it anyway, Uh, well, they can now, and we can now, and that's really all that I care about. (laughs) Whatever Enoch did or didn't eat when he walked with God, I don't care, but I can eat meat. Praise God. And something else is the same, always has been the same, and always will be the same. It's just more clearly stated, perhaps, here. It was assumed, it's now stated, and that is that all life belongs to God. And this is seen first in God prohibiting the eating of blood. Okay? Now, some of you enjoy steak, and some of you enjoy charcoal, or well done. Uh, and if you prefer, I, you'll never guess which side of that I'm on. Uh, if you prefer well done, you've probably said something about not eating bloody meat. I don't want to hear mooing on the plate, ha, ha. Well, I'm glad to tell you, rare steak is not bloody steak. That's not what that is. So you can look it up if you want to learn more, because this isn't about it, but that's just not what's happening. Uh, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what this passage is talking about. <laughs> so it's not like, oh, how am I supposed to cook steak, right? Not what this is talking about. It is more pointing to eating animals still living, kind of like animals eat animals still living. Um, According to God's word to them here, I think we're supposed to understand that eating a living animal, right, just devouring it that way, would dishonor the life that God gave them. Life is a special thing. Life is a gift from God. He gives it and he takes it away from humans and animals. And you see that spread throughout Scripture, not just from Genesis 1 of the breath of life, There, or the breath of life being taken from them in the flood, into the Psalms, right? In Job, right? Life is given from God. Life is taken by God because it belongs to him, human and animal. And life and blood are connected. That's what this text says, right? Don't eat the flesh with its life what does that mean? Well, with its blood, and then he he brings those together using that same a little bit of a uh, translation aspect here for your life of blood. So life and blood are connected in both animals and humans, so blood is to be honored and not consumed. Killing and eating animals is right and good. it's part of the dominion that God has given to humanity i mean, in honor of this text, you right like We apply the word specifically, so I got my hunting license this past week. And we'll see how good I am at exercising that dominion sometime this fall. Uh, Glenn is confident. I don't know where Glenn is. I'm less confident, but we'll, we'll see. But I definitely have divine permission for it. Life and blood are connected, and that really even points us forward. We could follow that trail that we could follow that idea into the sacrifices because that's kind of where that starts, right? The life and the blood being connected and then sacrifices being a bloody sacrifices to show an animal life given in place of a human life. And then Hebrews tells us, this is the sermon I'm not preaching, then Hebrews tells us that, that that animal life was not sufficient to cover our sins because a human life needs a human life So we have the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross for our forgiveness, right? That's that's sort of a path we could weave here, but that's not the emphasis today. So life and blood are connected, supposed to be treated because life belongs to God. And continuing along the same line of the specialness of life, it's not just animal life that's special in some sense, but in verse 5, God reemphasizes that there is a difference between humans... And animals, fish, birds, creeping things, whatever else—they uh, both have. They may both have blood, depending on the creature, right? They may—they both have life. That life is from God, but they are not the same in identity. Humans and animals are not the same in value before God, and should not be before us either. And our treatment of animals and of fellow humans. Uh, ought to demonstrate this. We have the freedom and the permission to kill and eat animals, but animals do not have God's permission to kill humans. It's not mutual. It doesn't flow both ways. And so it shows that same hierarchy of creation that God created humans and created animals, right? We're not to flip that in value and it's not okay. It's like, well, hey, you know, kill kill and be killed. It's just the same thing. It's not the same thing. Uh, if an animal kills a human, they are to be killed because of it. He says that. From every beast, I will require a reckoning for the lifeblood that could be shed. Uh, the Mosaic law gives us some specific examples of what that looked like in ancient Israel, that, that, that uh, ox, right, known for goring. And that's what that looked like in that context. The same principle is kind of given in case law in the Mosaic economy. In the same way as animals not having the right to kill humans... Humans do not have the right to arbitrarily kill other humans, and when that does happen, it is against God's will for his image bearers, and God requires a reckoning, a balancing of accounts. Uh, From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And I think it's there at the end of verse 5 that it's the same sort of word that's used back in Genesis 4 where it could say, from his brother, I require a reckoning. Am I my brother's keeper? From his brother. It's that same word for man here, that same relationship. So certainly a cast back to Genesis 4, kind of an answering of Cain's question. Do I have some sort of responsibility for my brother's life? Yes. (laughs) Does it matter if I kill him? Absolutely. Whoever sheds, kind of a poetic form here in communicating this truth, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Uh, Generations of students of the Bible have recognized this verse, verse 6 specifically, as kind of the establishment of human government. It's not just one-to-one type of a killing. And then capital punishment in there as well, an execution for a murderer. That's the balancing of accounts. You commit murder, you are forfeiting your life, right? Your life given in exchange for the life that you took. Uh, New Testament passages like Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, uh, reflect on, I think, this passage and build on that, speaking of government officials and wielding a sword as a minister of God for the good of their citizens and should be for the glory of God. And that type of a society aspect, that type of a government aspect protects against revenge killings that may or may not be just. Right? Because in the heat of the moment, without all the information, it's like, oh, you're like, what you did caused the death of this one that I love, so I'm going to take your life in balance of that. It's like, well, let's slow down a second. Right? Let's make sure that this is justice being served. And if it is, then capital punishment is the just crime. That is the reckoning. But we don't want to add murder to murder. Right? So we start to see, like, a, let's slow down and then. That, that is that kind of society and government sort of built up for justice to prevail, which is, of course, an attribute of God. But the murder of a divine image bearer is forbidden, and when it happens, the murderer's life is to be taken. His blood is to be shed to pay for his crime. Life is sacred before God from God, and life and blood are connected. Life is sacred before God, therefore life is to be protected and promoted. Life is to be protected and promoted. And both of these are really the two aspects, perhaps, of what this blessing is that God is speaking to Noah and his sons. So we've talked about the kind of the protection of life. What is this promotion of life? Well, the most significant part of God's gracious, blessing on Noah and on his family. And then really, and all of humanity is found in the repeated command. Did you notice this? In verse 1 and in verse 7, he says the same thing. So the bookends of it. And that might not sound significant to us, but to the original readers, like that type of repetition is, is highly significant. And it's like, what what kind of covers this whole value of life? And it's supposed to be protected and promoted. It's Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 1, verse 7. And you, you all, y'all, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Just like God blessed Adam and Eve with the responsibility to bear children, He reaffirms this to Noah and His family. And I hope you heard both sides of that. Sometimes we can miss the combination of those words blessed them with a responsibility. It is a blessing to fulfill the responsibilities that God has given to us. It blesses us, and whatever God has called us to, it is a blessing to us, and it is a blessing to others for us to fulfill the responsibilities that God has, right? The responsibility side kind of feels burdensome, but it comes from God as a blessing. He 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 does good to and through His people in the responsibilities that we have. Right? My commands are not burdensome. He bears those even with us. And since Noah is old, he already had three sons. The responsibility uh, for these commands fall most clearly on his sons. And then we read uh, in chapter ten, probably next week that they obeyed. Japheth had seven sons that made the list, Ham had four sons, and Shem had five sons. And we can safely assume that there were some daughters among those families too. If you don't know why I made that assumption, talk to your parents. It's very interesting to me, looking forward in Genesis, that this command, this this blessing of responsibility to multiply, to bear children, to see it as a blessing from God, right, going forth and, and just, like, defining humanity that every significant woman in Genesis has difficulty conceiving, right? God calls his people to the blessing of responsibility, right? A statement of physical blessing of, of, uh, from God. And yet, every, every significant woman in Genesis, and we'll see this over the course of the next, whatever, year and a half, Sarah, right, then Rebecca, and then Rachel, and that actually continues across the history of redemption. It's amazing. And what felt to those women, I mean, right, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that, Sarah at 90, what felt to them like the withholding of physical blessing, and when a blessing is withheld, what does it feel like? It feels like a curse. And so instead of being able to enjoy the blessing of God, they feel cursed by God physically, and what felt to them like a curse, the withholding of physical blessing, ended up being the source of God's spiritual blessing to his people and to the world. So even with these statements, it's like God then just speaks something and then sort of flips it on its head to draw attention to it. Like if you miss the connection of those things, I think you're, we're missing the thrust of what Genesis is trying to do, to draw attention to, hey, I, I said this blessing and I'm going to hold it back. What are you doing? So glad you asked. <laughs> Means you're paying attention. It is amazing though how God works. See the suffering of his people always leads to the exaltation of his people. Often in this life, always in the life to come. And that pattern persists for us today. Humility leads to exaltation. God resists the proud, right? He pushes them low, but he gives grace. He lifts up the humble. Suffering leads to glory, and death leads to resurrection. Do do those type of things, humility to exaltation, suffering to glory, and death to resurrection, does that sound like anyone to you? Who does that sound like? Jesus, right? From Philippians chapter 2, where we read most clearly of that, he who was high went low, came down low and went lower. And then what happened is he went down, right? The Lord used that humbling and suffering and death to then exalt him. And why does Paul give that in Philippians chapter 2? Because you and I are to follow that same path. Oh, we want to put the brakes on that going low. I don't want to be humbled. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to die to myself or die physically, right i want to be i want to be up but the path up is down we see that even in just like the this this promise that's held back it's just the pattern of what god does and so we are to follow christ walking as he walked he humbled himself, we are to humble ourselves. He suffered, we are to suffer. Read 1 Peter, 2 Peter, talking about that, even just celebrating the suffering of Christ and of Christ's people. He died, we are to take up our cross. We are to go die with him. And when we do, we don't just follow him down, we follow him up, right? Are you following him that way? Are you avoiding all humility and humiliation, all suffering, unwilling to die? One who would save his life will lose it. One who loses his life for Christ's sake, for the gospel, that one will find it. Are we willing to be made low, to be humbled and suffer, even die, trusting God to lift us up and exalt us and resurrect us? God is gracious in his blessing. He works more astonishingly than we could ever imagine. Even in this, the grace of blessings, when it's withheld, or maybe you're just enjoying the grace of blessing, that's wonderful, right? Give God praise for that. But so often in our lives, like we have an expectation of the gracious blessing of God from his word, and then we don't receive it, and we're like, what is happening? God is doing more. Than if you just had the physical blessing. That's what's happening. We have the promise of that in the example of Christ, the story of redemption across his word, right? And the longing for that which is to come. But it's a lousy part of the story. It's not the end of the story. And we see that as we walk through Genesis. But God is uh, gracious in his, his blessing, blessing of responsibility. When I was in seminary, uh, in the metro Detroit area, uh, I picked up an extra job doing snow removal. Whenever it would snow, which was often because it was Michigan, uh, I would get a call in the middle of the night to show up at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Uh, at these various commercial properties. There's the strip mall, um, townhouses. We had a movie theater. There were the full-time guys who drove the snowplow trucks, right, creating these mountains of snow. Have you ever been anywhere other than West Virginia? You know what I'm talking about. I was like, oh, we get snow here. (laughs) No, you don't. No, we don't. Uh, There were those guys in the trucks, and then there was the ground crew. That was me, a few other guys. We would shovel the sidewalks off, uh, and then we would fill five-gallon buckets with 50 pounds of ice melt, and we would scatter it by hand. Uh, And then I would stop sometime in the mid-morning to go home, shower, eat, go to class, and then my other full-time job, to come home, wave at Leanne, and... Elise, maybe Juliet, uh, and then go do it again. And I can describe that work for you in one simple word. Miserable. (laughs) Miserable. Right? After doing that for just a couple of winters, maybe two or three, trying to save up some extra money for a minivan because, God, we were multiplying uh, as our, our car wasn't the right size anymore. But after doing that for just a few years, I would get sick to my stomach. Do you remember this? I would get sick to my stomach every time I saw snowfall. And again, that was nearly every day. You'd just be like, oh, no. Like, I'm going to get, like, I couldn't fall asleep that night because I knew. It was like, is he going to call me at 11? Is he going to call me at 12? When do I have to show up? I'm not going to sleep. So then I wouldn't sleep because I wouldn't sleep. And then it just keep going. That continued. That pit, that anxiety in the pit of my stomach continued. Even after we moved here in, to West Virginia and I wasn't even doing that job anymore. Like, snow would fall and be like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to have to work. But thankfully, we moved away from Michigan. We came here to West Virginia. We don't have to worry about storms anymore, right? We aren't going to do snow removal. Then we moved to our house in Charleston, uh, downtown on the west side. And whenever we would get a heavy rain, the city's storm drain system would back up into our basement, which was also our laundry room. A few inches of water, you say? No. Three to four feet of water gushing out of a hole this size in our basement and filling it up. I was in the Miami airport getting ready to fly home from a work trip the first time it happened. Leanne was home with Elise, Juliet, and four-month-old Adele. I get a call, like, the water's in the basement. I was like, oh, there's some water in the basement. No, no it's filling up. It's going to take the house away. And I was like, open the window. She's like, you're an idiot. I should say that. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what else to do. I got like, they're boarding. Like, this is a disaster. It's that every time it would rain, you remember, right? It was just kind of like, it's not, oh, I wonder. It's like, as soon as it would come down, it's like, oh, what a nice rainstorm. One time, like 1130, we tried to do like a bucket brigade to bail it out. It's just the dumbest, like, we could drain the Kanawha River that way, just easier. Traumatizing, right? Snow, we like, oh, rain. We like, no. And when we finally moved out of that house, we vowed never to own another basement, it took us a while to enjoy rainstorms again. Can you imagine what Noah and his family would have felt after leaving the ark the first time they saw rain clouds rolling in on the horizon? I can. <laughs> Feels like a snowstorm. Feels like rain clouds in a flooding basement, but far, far worse. Storms would have reminded them not just of what they were going to have to endure by way of work or what might happen to their washer and dryer downstairs, but it would have reminded them of God's judgment. And it it should remind them of God's judgment. And storms should remind us of God's past and future judgment. Even though it's not going to come from a storm, judgment is still coming just as it did. It would have reminded Noah and his family of those type of things. And God, who had sent that storm who had judged and saved, also gave them and us a reminder of his merciful promise of patience and deliverance and salvation. We're still in Genesis, now the next section, verses 8 through 17. become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So here we learn that just as God is is gracious in his blessing, God is trustworthy in his covenant. God is trustworthy in his covenant. In this passage, we read of God establishing, that's the word that he uses, establishing a covenant with all the living things on earth. And covenant is an important word. Uh, It's going to come up again in our study of Genesis and starting chapter 12 and other things. Um, So I want to give a definition that that I read for somebody smarter than me. (laughs) A covenant is an enduring agreement which defines a relationship between two parties involving a solemn binding obligation or obligations specified on the part of at least one of the parties toward the other made by oath under threat of divine curse ratified by a visual ritual. Hopefully you got that. Two key words that I think we can emphasize from that are the aspects that there's an agreement that establishes a relationship not just a contract for work to be done, right? But, a, but an agreement that defines the terms of a relationship. Let's consider a family to try to understand this. Uh, we could use Jackson and Josie made a covenant right here yesterday, but we won't use you. We're going to use me. My relationship with Leanne is a covenant relationship. Uh, we both chose and agreed to bind ourselves to each other as husband and wife, taking certain obligations on ourselves, making oaths or promises or vows, right? Uh, To uphold this relationship till death do us part. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Now, I'm also in a relationship to Elise, for example. Uh, I'm her father. This is a natural relationship, though. It is not a covenant relationship. Uh, I'm her father. She's my daughter. I still have obligations toward her, But it wasn't through oaths or promises that I made to her during a a ceremony. The relationship has simply existed since she was conceived, right? That's just the relationship and obligate. That's not a covenant relationship. Um, As I thought about that definition, uh, interestingly, I am, I would say, James and Lily's father by covenant because there was a ceremony in which oaths were spoken, right, to define a relationship. So that's kind of cool that that sort of fits in there as well, right? The judge said, do you promise to be a father to them? But I said, yes. And I was kind of weepy about it. And the judge was like, normally the mom's weeping, dad's weeping. I'm just like, (laughs) I'm I'm, uh, I'm soggy. Uh, I'm soggy sometimes. In Genesis 6, verse 18... We already read that God told Noah about the coming flood, and then he said, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And now, here in chapter 9, God uses that same language with Noah and his sons, and God fulfills what he promised. Judgment's going to come, you're going to be saved, I will establish my covenant with you. And now he's saying, and now I'm doing it right? I establish my covenant with you. Agreement, relationship, two people. What what are the two sides of this covenant? Well, there's God. And did you see who the other side of it is? Like everybody else, <laughs> everything else, God and every living creature on earth, human and animal, which is interesting about this, right? He, he makes a point of specifying that a few different times, Right, verse 10, not just with you, that's verse 9, and your offspring, okay, humans, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, every beast of the earth. So this is a universal covenant. God with, with all the living creatures and all of creation. However, the two sides aren't equal. There can never be an equality of relationship with God. Certainly not the case here. And they aren't making promises to each other. Not all covenants are the same. There's always like a relationship defined. There have to be at least two parties, right? I made vows to Leanne. Leanne made vows to me. We've kept those vows. We plan to keep those vows till death do us part, right? Uh, So in marriage, there's two sides. I'm speaking to each other in defining that relationship. That's not here, though. Matter of fact, God speaks to establish this covenant, and all of the rest of creation stays silent. Nobody else says anything. This is a, what we could call a unilateral covenant, or, or another side. It's one-sided. It's God defining the relationship. And humanity and all the creatures just, just receiving. So it's a, a unilateral covenant, one-sided. And what are the terms of this covenant? Like, what, what is spoken in these things? Like, what do the living creatures need to do for this to happen? Nothing. There are no conditions. There are no terms. God is just saying what he is committed to do. So this is an unconditional covenant. He didn't ask permission, right? He doesn't require anything from it. He said, this is just what I'm going to do, and it establishes a cre- creator-creature relationship. Really, the same kind of creator-creature relationship that existed from the very beginning is kind of like just reaffirmed here, after this time of judgment. In making this covenant, God has already admitted that he knows that humanity has and will remain sinful. So if it was a conditional covenant, then the judgment would come back again. If you don't, fill in the blank, well, then it would have been broken (laughs) as we break every covenant. Anytime we have a responsibility before God, we always violate those things, right? God knew that, and so this is unconditional. I mean, animals aren't gonna do anything for it, Uh, but humans aren't needing to do anything for it either. God acknowledges the sinfulness. God acknowledges that they deserve judgment. Every day he should have sent, every hour, every minute, he should have sent another universal flood to wipe out humanity. But he's saying, no, I'm not going to do that. We deserve judgment, but we won't receive it by a flood. So this is that it's unconditional, but it's also undeserved. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap on those type of things, right? But with full knowledge of the sinfulness of humanity, God still says, this is what I'm going to do. And what is the promise of this covenant? Well, first, God spoke this to himself. We covered that last week. Now he tells Noah and his sons what he's going to do. God is promising or or swearing never again to destroy the whole earth in judgment with a flood like just happened. Interestingly, this covenant defines what God won't do despite our sin, but it doesn't define anything about what he will do about our sin, if anything. So this covenant is not redemptive, right? Birds, fish, creeping things, right? Beasts of the earth. There's no redemption for them, right? They're they're brought into the right relationship, but they didn't sin, so they don't need to be saved, So he's establishing a covenant with all of his creatures that's not redemptive because of the nature of which it's universal and all those type of things, and it doesn't actually deal with sinfulness. It almost kind of feels more of like an overlooking of it. We know that that's not the case because that's not who God is. But yet this covenant is not a redemptive covenant. It's sort of like kind of leaves the question, so if you won't do that because of sin, what will you do about sin? While the earth remains, like, oh, okay, so there's some other judgment that's coming. This is like, but how do we walk with God? Like, what do we do about these type of things? It's like, oh, okay, so Adam, you know, he sinned, so that was a fall. So maybe Noah, maybe Noah will get it right. Come back next week, Lord willing, we'll see that Noah doesn't get it right. Right, right, first thing we see Noah doing after this sacrifice, Noah doesn't do it right. So we're immediately confronted with the fact that it's kind of like sin is still a problem. And we are left asking the question, what will God do about it? And we find out in Genesis 12, right? Three, the promise. Then Enoch walked with God, so it's still a reality. People are calling on the name of the Lord. Noah finds grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord, right? And then we'll move to Abraham. We're going to see what God's doing. But this is not, not that God's not doing anything. This is just not a redemptive covenant. What is the duration of this covenant? How long will it be in force? What do you think? How long? Forever. Not trying to be a trick question here. Never again. God says four different times. I tried to emphasize it in my reading. This type of judgment, never again. He calls it an everlasting covenant in verse 16. It is as much in effect today, June 11th, 2023, as it was thousands of years ago when God first spoke it to Noah and to his sons. It is equally in force. And what symbol or or token, let me ask you this, right? Wedding yesterday, and a month before that, and a month and a half before that. Uh, There's lots of weddings. Uh, What symbol or token is given at a wedding as a sign of the marriage covenant between the husband and wife? What's given? What's the sign? Wedding rings. They aren't the marriage covenant itself. Remember, we've used this before. This is uh, not a magic trick. Married, still married, right? Even if it falls off into a pond, still married, and you have to get it replaced, just hypothetically. They aren't the marriage covenant itself, but it does point to the covenant promises that were made. That's what this sign does. Genesis 9, 12 to 13, what is the sign of this covenant? Thank you for falling into my trap. Does it say rainbow? It doesn't say rainbow. It is a rainbow, but it doesn't say it. It says, the ESV doesn't, NIV does. It's like, come on, guys, like, give us a setup here. God just says, my bow. My bow, as in bow and arrows, bow. It's the exact same word. Like David picks up a bow, it's this word, right? Anybody else uses a bow, it's this word. As in a weapon of warfare and destruction, the means of God's judgment. God is saying, when the storm clouds roll in, you will be able to see my battle bow used in the flood storm to shoot my shafts of wrath on the earth. You'll see it now hung up, suspended in a condition of peace. I will not war against all of you with my bow like I did. right? Hanging it up in that way. And one author called this, and this was great, God's unilateral disarmament treaty. What was the greater destruction that could come? God's destruction. And yet God says, I'm hanging that up. Remember, there's nothing mutual about this. It's not, God says like, well, if you show my people, or you show my angels, like my weapons checkers, you show them that you're going to stop doing something then I'll hang up the lightning bolts, and then you do this, and then I'll stop sending the thunder. And we'll just sort of gradually both disarm and move toward a ceasefire. It's not, that's it's not the nature of the relationship. God just says, I'm hanging it up. He didn't require anything of humanity in establishing this covenant. And it wasn't as if God forgot why he had destroyed the earth with a flood. Does God have a short memory? Like, he, he acknowledges the sinfulness, right? He calls it, I, even though they are every inclination of their heart, still as evil as it was back in chapter 6, it is in chapter 8, even though I will not do this again in this way. We know God hasn't changed his mind about the seriousness of sin, right? Sometimes as a parent, it's kind of like, well, we're going to discipline every time this happens, and then you forget. And then later you're like, why are they acting like that? Oh, that's right, we were going to do this discipline thing. Or it's just kind of like, like you will never, and be like, all right, you know, i got to back off about this. Like maybe it's not that serious. Is God just being like, oh, kids will be kids, humans will be humans. Guess I won't do this. It's not what he's doing. All right? that, that would be a defilement of the character of God. It's not who he is. This covenant acknowledges sin. It doesn't address it at all. So obviously, something more than this covenant is needed, which kind of creates a question and a longing in our minds and in our hearts of, like, well, what is God going to do about our sin? And something more is needed, something more is certainly coming as we continue in Genesis, because sin still needs to be judged, and it will be. Matter of fact, as soon as we, you know, there's consequences that come on Ham and Canaan and the end of chapter nine, there's consequences for all of humanity in their rebellion in chapter ten, and they're just continuing consequences. Rain might not fall on a sinful world, but fire will fall on a sinful city. Our God's not lessened his seriousness about sin. So so judgment may fall locally on a town that takes a woman who's married. Treats her as if she's not. And it may fall, right? All these different acts of judgment may fall. So we can't read Genesis and be like, oh, God doesn't care about sin. Oh, no. God cares about sin. But along with that reminder of that seriousness, we have these promises of redemption starting to be woven in and expanded. So sin still needs to be judged, and it will be locally and globally. Redemption or salvation, like the ark, that still needs to be provided, and it will be. We know it's in the character of God to provide it. We've already read about that. But this covenant displays the undeserved common grace of God toward his creation. We learn about him in these things. I find it very interesting how God words his promise in verse 16. Look at that again. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. Not you will see it. I will see it, God says. That's just not what I would expect, right? It's kind of like, you know, who, who, who's the ring for, right? It's like, I look at that like, oh, okay, that's right. It's a sign to remind, it isn't a sign, excuse me, to remind us. It's a sign to remind God of his own covenant promise. It's like God just keeps going above and beyond to ensure Noah and his family about his own trustworthiness in this promise. All of these aspects are just above and beyond really what God needed to do. God could have just decided, right? Chapter eight, verses 20 to 22. Smelled the aroma. and He's like, I'm never gonna do this again. He could have just made that decision in his own counsel's trinity and then just never flooded the earth again and just left Noah and his, maybe, maybe leaving that threat You know, we always think threats will work. They don't. (laughs) We think that they will. God doesn't just uh, decide. And he could have just stated his intention. He could have been like, by the way, that's not going to happen again. Move on. He could have just said what he was going to do. He could have just promised, hey, I promise you this isn't going to happen. But no, he made a covenant oath, right? And in binding himself to that, right? Do you remember that part of the definition? Kind of putting himself under his own curse, That's what a covenant does. It's like, may God deal, may I deal so with myself if I were to break this. He made a covenant oath and set a permanent sign in the sky to remind himself. Now, maybe there were no rainbows before, and maybe there were. I think that there probably were, because that's how light works. <laughs> uh, but it's not like the, there wasn't a dome of the atmosphere. But if you're kind of like, no, absolutely not, because of the way that the clouds were in the firmament and what you think about all those things, so there couldn't have been a rainbow, so God makes a new thing. If that's how you read the text, that's great. I don't think it's necessary for us to read the text this way, because sometimes God takes a new thing and, and right, creates the own sign, and, and sometimes God takes something that already exists and said, this is now a sign for this. So it really doesn't, it doesn't lower it. Like it's okay, both sides. If there were no rainbows and God says, hey, look at this new thing and this is what it means. or if God said, hey, this thing that existed every time that there was a storm, this points to this new thing now. Both of them are fine, right? So it's not what God could have done. Uh, God could have created a square box instead, right? God could have set off fireworks every single time. And like, by the way, every time a store goes past, there's going to be this fireworks display. It's going to remind you uh, that I'm not going to judge the world by a flood. That's not in my notes uh, for obvious reasons, but it just doesn't, I don't find it significant if there were or weren't rainbows before, right? So let's not center on that. Let's take a look at it and be like, but God says this is the significance. Uh, One one author put this, why does God just keep piling this up? Uh, the point is made, this person said, as is, is unequivocally as possible that God's promises are entirely believable. His words are totally trustworthy. He backs up his word with an act to eliminate even the possibility of forgetfulness. God sets the sign, gives it significance, significance, right? Significance, and says, When I see this, I will remember. So we look and we remember God remembering. When I see it, phrase remind you of anything. When I see the bow, I will. She got it. What else did God say? When I see it, I will act in a certain way. Reminds me of Exodus and the Passover. Exodus 12, verse 13 the blood on the doorposts from the Passover lamb shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And on that fateful night, the 10th plague, Moses writes in Exodus for us, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead, but not in the Israelite households. God had given them a sign and a promise attached to that sign. And when God saw the sign, he kept his promise. You see? They were spared because God had seen the side of blood that he had provided for them, and he was faithful to his word. He saw the blood and his judgment passed over them. And God's words to Noah in chapter 9 are an expansion of what he declared to himself in chapter 8 that we discussed last week. God maintains creation's rhythms. Do you remember that? And so all of these different things of day and night, cold and heat, let's see, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, and all that is attached to this sign that he's given of that faithfulness with uh, his bow, the rainbow. All of that's part of what the rainbow symbolizes. So we bring 8 and 9 all together in this covenant that God has made with creation. And then we look with the eyes of the prophet Jeremiah. What else did God say like this? In Jeremiah 33, God uses this covenant with creation in Genesis 8 and 9 as a guarantee of the fulfillment of a greater covenant in the coming of Jesus as king from the line of David. This all connects, at least in my head, so keep following me. Jeremiah 33 says this, "'Thus says the Lord, "'If I have not established my covenant with day and night "'and the fixed order of heaven and earth, "'then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant,' And will not choose one of David's offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes, he said, and will have mercy on them. Okay. Like we've seen previously. Because we're very early on in Scripture, right? Every single instance of God's trustworthiness, every single act of faithfulness to keep his promises, ought to build a faith and a confidence in us that he will also keep his promises to us. We already see that pattern happening in scripture. That's why every generation is told to remember and recount to the next generation everything that God has done. And so Jeremiah right? Thousands of years, a significant portion of Israel's history later. Matter of fact, toward the, 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 the downfall of the kingdom of Judah, God says, do you remember Genesis? Do you remember what I said and what I did and what I have done? Even, in the, even when the smoke from the city rising up would have blotted out the sun, it was still there and the, the earth was still spinning. And the seasons were still happening, and rain would still fall, and the sun would still rise. All of those things would still happen because God is faithful to his word, and despite the judgment on his people that would come because of their sinfulness, yet God's promise to David, you will always have a son on that throne. All of those promises that had to be fulfilled. So Jeremiah, in this place of hopelessness and weeping and grief, because they were being brought low, My gracious blessing to you will still come out of this, out of the rubble, chop down the tree, but the the sprout, right? That'll come up. And so God uses his own faithfulness over thousands of years to remind his people that he's not done. He still is trustworthy in his covenant, the covenant he made to David. And so now we are thousands of years beyond that. And so we look back and we think, oh, look at this track record of faithfulness. Look at this consistent trustworthiness in all of the covenant promises that God has made. And so we look at that completed word and we'd be like, oh, okay, he's going to be the same way with us. God has never stopped being trustworthy to the promises that he has made. Never stopped being gracious in his blessing. So his word all the way back from Genesis, following along with other followers of of God meant to build that trust in us. So as you read God's word, you are reading God's word, right? (laughs) Read God's word, right? With an eye to learn. Learn of you, learn of God, learn of his promises. And as you read it, are you growing in your faith and trust in God? Look what he said, look what he's done. Look what he said, look what he's done. He said this and looked like he was doing something that didn't match with that. Well, just keep reading. It's like, how can the blessing spread through Abraham and Sarah? They're so old. God. Is anything too difficult for God? No, he's going to be trustworthy to keep his promises. So as you read God's word, you read about that. And beyond that, as you consider the lives of God's people. Sure, biography. We don't even need to do that. Ourselves. As we consider our own lives, your, your life, are you, are you growing in your faith in those type of things that no matter what is happening, that God is not gone, gracious in his blessing and trustworthy in his covenant, that you can trust him. He has never failed any of his people. And it looked like he had, but he didn't, right? And again, you might be at a really lousy part of that story. God is not finished. Are you paying attention to that pattern of God's trustworthiness? See, brothers and sisters, just as God looks at the rainbow and remembers his covenant with creation, and just as God looked at the blood on the doors and remembered his promised salvation to them, so God now looks at the crucified and resurrected Christ who isn't on earth at his side the right hand of the father in heaven he looks at his son and remembers his promised salvation to us right from the earliest pages of his self-revelation to us in the bible god has shown that he is gracious in his blessing and he is trustworthy in his covenant we sang uh, of christ being an anchor in times of storm today The storms of life roll in. If you're young, literally, it probably scares you. Older, probably doesn't scare you as much for a storm to come in. But then that metaphor of I see the clouds on the horizon, or maybe you're right in the thick of it, a storm of suffering or grief or trial or temptation, this one's going to put me under. I'm I'm not going to survive this one. And we can remember God's trustworthy word here, right? His promise. So no, it's not going to swamp you. It can't. And it never has for any of his people. If you are, if you are Christ's, then when those storms run in, we can trust the God who sent that storm. Right? Never take the cheap path of saying that God didn't do it short-term gain, eternal loss. It is not better for your suffering to come from some source other than God. It's not better. The God who sends the storm, right, remembers his promises. So instead of running from him in fear, we cling to him in faith. Physical or spiritual storms. Because if you are Christ's, whatever that storm is, It cannot permanently or eternally harm you. It just can't. The all-powerful God who sent that storm will use it in your life for your good, and he will get glory out of it. It's a promise that we have. It's a promise more permanent than the rainbow. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would give us faith to believe those wonderful promises. Your word is true, Father. Our faith is small and weak. Help our unbelief. And even just thinking about that, God, don't, that story in Mark. Uh, Jesus, if you are able, if you're willing, you can, if I'm able. And we feel swamped by suffering and storms and grief. But you are strong enough. Your promise is certain. Please give us faith to believe your good promises. To know that you are trustworthy above all else, more than our own experiences or thoughts or feelings. That you would be glorified. Please strengthen us as your people in this. May we build a a community of, of Reminding each other of the trustworthiness of God in our own lives and in each other's lives. As we, you've given us each other in your spirit to accomplish your purposes. May we remember that. Amen.